probably my greatest, uh, proudest moment of coaching ever had nothing to do with wrestling. I didn't bring salads in one day, and I started getting dirty looks. And this kid, Rudy, looks at me and says, <laughs> Lee, where my salad, bruh? And just like, you know, man, you know you're supposed to bring me a salad. And I was, I was just so excited because, you know, the thought is, and our Secretary of Agriculture promotes this, is that kids and, uh, you know, teenagers don't want to eat healthy. Right. Um, and I would argue that's absolutely not true. A lot of kids don't have access to healthy food. Um, right. Have not been exposed to it because they've grown up in food deserts. But South Bronx is as uh, bad of a food desert as there is in New York. And if these kids who didn't know what was in their salads can go to not eating them to being upset when they don't get them in about three weeks, then uh, I'm very, very hopeful. That was Josh Lee, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is Josh Lee, co-founder of Green Top Farms, a small catering company based in Queens, specializing in microgreens and fresh local produce, in addition to being a passionate advocate for healing our broken food system and launching a startup to tackle that massive problem, Josh is also a girls and boys high school wrestling coach in the South Bronx. He joined me in the studio here in New York. Josh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Dave, thanks for having me. Appreciate having you here. So let's just dive right into it, dude, because uh, it seems to me like as a country we are eating ourselves to death. And I know we'll talk about the broader food system, what you're doing at Green Top, but let's just talk about it at, at, at the highest level and how you see it as an athlete and a, and a farmer and someone who cares a lot about this issue. Um, well, I agree that we're eating ourselves to death. We are also destroying the earth uh, the way we're eating. And I think that has been a process that's happened over the last seven, eight decades. Right. Um, with the rise of industrial farming, the Green Revolution, uh, we got very efficient at producing calories. Um, and those calories are, as we get more efficient in producing more calories per acre, um, or now per foot, per square foot, those uh, calories have become less nutritious. Um, right. Have done tons of damage to the environment. And... We've kind of been sold a bill of goods that we're eating calories that we still call food, but they are not food, in my opinion. They're just empty calories. And right. And accounts for almost 60% of all calories in the American diet. So, mm. And so, you know, you've got Green Top, which we can get into in a minute and talk about what your, your ambitions are there. But, but uh, you know, in the, sh in the short term, 
uh, you know, where, where do you think we can like make some progress? Because one of the things I'm trying to focus on this podcast is, you know, actually moving the needle on whatever issue we're discussing. And it can feel a little overwhelming between the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, the agribusiness and the culture and everybody going 100 miles an hour to try to improve nutrition. Sorry, say the question one more time. <laughs> yeah. What can we do about it in the near term, I suppose? Uh, on an individual level, uh, we can all just be more thoughtful about the food that we buy and put right. into our bodies. Right. Um, know where it comes from. Go to a farmer's market. You know, yep. once a month is better than never. Right. Once a week is better than that. Every yep. day is better than that. Uh, and I would love to see a gardening revolution, um, kind of like the Victory Gardens for World War II. Right. I think that... Uh, on an individual level, there's only so much we can do, but I think that's the most powerful thing we can do right. is grow some of our own food that sort of takes the uh, power away from the corporate food system right. and uh, redistributes it to uh, the people eating the food. Right. And it also, uh, I think it would look a lot cooler if yards had you know, squash and tomatoes versus just the same cookie-cutter grass. That it's, sounds good. It's like a golf course. Well, tell me about Green Tops uh, and when you started it and how it's going. Uh, well, Green Top Farms is... Now, an urban farm that has sort of evolved into a farm-to-table catering company Yep. Um, started essentially the day after I left teaching, which was uh, June will be four years, and didn't know exactly what we were going to do, um, had gotten very interested in food and nutrition. I had been a teacher for four years in the South Bronx working in the food desert, and I had grown up in rural North Carolina, so it was a very, very different environment. Uh, the most notable difference for me was... The fact that so many kids were coming to school hungry, um, right? And even the kids who were getting food were not getting real food, and um, it just uh, it was it was baffling to me how the kids didn't really know the difference between uh, a real fruit or a fruit snack or uh, right. you know corn chips, a or, fruit or roll or up and a piece of fruit. Yeah, fruit. Yeah, fruit roll up. That counts, Mister. Um, right. You know, no, Mister. This is corn chips. You know. Um, so we had a lot of discussions um, in classes that were not about food. Uh, about food because um, I was just I was just baffled. So took a deep dive, set a Google, a couple of Google alerts for urban farming and uh, vertical farming. And um, as I was leaving, I was starting to get more hits on that. So we started growing microgreens, a buddy of mine and myself, just uh, in my apartment. Thought we were maybe headed towards a wholesale warehouse, selling to Whole Foods and juice shops, things like that. And wait, just quickly, what exactly is a microgreen? Microgreen is just a fancy word for a sprout. Okay. It's a marketing term for sprouts. Got it. Uh, anything, you can literally grow a microgreen from any vegetable. Okay. Uh, oh, if, I didn't know if, that. If you harvest it in the first week to three weeks. Got before it. Before it gets its second leaves. Okay. Uh, so you can, you know, you can grow little carrot sprouts that uh, look like grass, but they taste just like carrots, and you can season stuff with them and cool. make things pretty. Chefs like them because they uh, add, add color to a dish right. and flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were growing microgreens and then, uh, somebody asked if we could turn those microgreens into salads and we were a little hesitant at first, but we were sort of open to any sort of experiment the first year, um, started making salads. That was a big hit. And then eventually someone asked if we could do a catered salad bar for like 20 people and then that became a hundred people. And now we're doing farm to table catering, breakfast and lunch all over New York. Wow. That's fantastic. It's a very shortened version of the last four years. <laughs> no, it's good though. But and so, just talk a little bit about where you where you want to go with the company, and just sort of how vertical farming could be so uh, Im- important. Vertical farming really, because uh, it sounds sort of like I, it sounds not you know like what you grew up with. It's not tractors out on open fields. It's not not in at a all. Building in a city. I, but, I was 
I was enamored with vertical farming the first time I saw it. This was before I even moved to New York. I saw it on the Colbert Report. Right. Uh, he had uh, Professor Despomier from Columbia, who's now retired, who wrote the book, The Vertical Farm. And this guy was talking about the farms of the future being in skyscrapers and air-conditioned. And I was just remembering growing up working in tobacco fields and tobacco barning and uh, air-conditioned farming sounded real good. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, I was like, oh, man, maybe I could get back into that. Maybe I could get back into farming. And uh just followed it, kind of had my ear to the ground for a long time. And since I have been vertical farming, I guess, uh, the last four years, it's kind of lost its luster. Oh, really? I th- yeah, I think so. Um, I'd, it's definitely being over- oversold, 100%. Right. Um, right. It is, I don't know of any vertical farms in America that are truly sustainable, meaning they have a financial model that works. I see. Um, you're still- see it's, just, it's just too expensive, you mean, to do it? Uh. I'm in farm school right now, and, the, and, right. and I'm learning the answer to a lot of questions around food is uh, it depends. <laughs> um, in America, especially in New York City, it is incredibly expensive to grow in the city. Right. Um, I don't think we'll ever have a warehouse in the city. It just doesn't make sense. Right. Um, folks like Radical Farms, they have greenhouses outside the city and ship it in. And right. they do, um, although they just do hydroponic. They don't actually do vertical farming that I know of. Um, but... Uh, Places like Saudi Arabia and the desert, right. uh, Nevada, I think it makes a lot of sense. It uses yep. a lot less water. Um, but you're you're competing with free sunlight, one, right. and we still don't know. Uh, we don't have any solid evidence. I don't think that hydroponic uh, growing can be as nutritious as growing in fertile soil. Ah. That said, most of the soil that we grow in now is not fertile anymore. Um, we've basically killed over 50% of the dirt in America. Um, if you think of dirt or soil more like a rainforest than just, you know, the stuff that you play with when you're a kid in the sandbox. Right. Um, it's a entire ecosystem, and we have sort of applied the minimum input, maximum output to the soil, and we've depleted vast swaths of, uh, vast swaths of land. That's tough, it's tough to say in the microphone. Uh, but we depleted a lot of soil in America, which is directly uh, related to the uh, lack of nutrition in, in food, even in real food that we're growing now. Right. Uh, is less nutritious than it used to be. Um, and is that the kind of thing where, you know, if you if you do it over the course of decades between the uh, highly efficient ways you farm and the, th- the chemicals and things you use to farm, et cetera, et cetera, to get to this state, that you can't exactly throw a couple organic compost things on a field and get it back. <laughs> it, it, it's not it, – you can't fix it quickly. We could fix it in a lot shorter amount of time than we have ruined it, for right. sure. Okay. Because compost is – it's like a miracle cure for soil. I mean, it is, it's like a, a salve that you're putting on a wound. Right. Um, and it could, we could definitely heal the soil with, if we had, uh, if we, if you converted all of New York trash that's compostable <laughs> into compost. Right. Um, then, and probably uh, things like leaving fields fallow or different rotations for of sure. crops. I mean, co- kind of ro- stuff. Uh, cr- cover crops, um, legumes, things mm-hmm. that put nitrogen back into the soil. Right. It's a little slower process than doing it with a machine, but uh, it's much more holistic, and you get a lot more right. um, nutrients on the on the end of it right. uh, doing it that way. Got it. I, I, I personally think that uh, outside of the folks who are growing pretty much all their own food and just really in touch with the land or foraging all the time, almost everyone in America is at least mildly malnourished. 
um, too severely malnourished. Wow, that's fascinating. You wouldn't think that given the obesity crisis. So we're, we're well, yeah, malnourished I mean, and we're too heavy. It's like we're on a diet of popcorn. Yeah, you know, we can we can eat a lot of it, but it doesn't uh, doesn't have a lot in it. Right. So we're uh, you know we're having to supplement with all sorts of pharmaceuticals and right. You know it, it leads to all these fad diets that are just marketing. You know. Right. Uh, right. I'm not sure how we got on this. I think we we're talking about vertical farming. Yeah, it's all connected. Well, tell me a little bit more about uh, about your coaching experience because I know you're still doing that in the mm-hmm. Bronx about your school because it obviously connects to this this uh, thought process you went through with respect to the nutrition of your young athletes uh, and the kids you were working with. Yeah, I started a wrestling program at my school. And as you know, wrestling involves uh, watching your weight. You have to be in a certain weight class. A lot of times you want to lose excess fat if possible. And so I've gone through that with a lot of kids who are overweight and wanted to lose weight. Sometimes people come out for wrestling just to lose weight. Right. And it was very difficult in the beginning. We're also uh, bearing the lead here. This is a girls wrestling team. The, uh, well, the, the ones that win is, is the girls team. Yeah, That's We right. have a boys team, but they're, not as, they're not as good. They don't get the attention. Um, yeah, the girls team is, is very good. Uh, Niasia, one of my all-time favorite athletes, um, when she started with us, she was at 300 pounds. I think you've met her. Yeah. And I saw her recently. She's down to 180. Wow. And you know you know the saying is you can't outwork a bad diet. Um, wrestling is one of the most in calorie-intensive sports uh, for practice. And we were having really hard practices, and some of the kids just the weight was not coming down like it should. And it was all completely related to diet. Mm-hmm. So when I left teaching and started farming, and once we started making the salads, I, I started bringing leftover salads um, to my wrestling team. And initially, I got a lot of pushback, a lot of curious questions. You know, what is this? What is this? Right. Um, didn't Tastes strange. Yeah. yeah. You know, where's the chicken? You know, gotta, it's not a salad if it doesn't have chicken on it um, for some of the kids. But after a few weeks, and this is probably my greatest, uh, proudest moment of coaching ever, had nothing to do with wrestling, I didn't bring salads in one day. And I started getting dirty looks. And this kid, Rudy, <laughs> looks at me and says, Lee, where my salad, bruh? <laughs> and just like you know, man, you know you're supposed to bring me a salad, and I was I was just so excited because, you know, the thought is, and our secretary of agriculture promotes this, is that kids and uh, you know teenagers don't want to eat healthy, right? Um, and I would argue that's absolutely not true. A lot of kids don't have access to healthy food, um, right? Have not been exposed to it because they've grown up in food deserts. But South Bronx is as uh, bad of a food desert as there is in New York, and if these kids who didn't know what was in their salads could go to not eating them to being upset when they don't get them in about three weeks, then uh, I'm very, very hopeful that if we can... I, you asked our question earlier about what our ultimate goal is. Our right. ultimate goal is to get into the schools. Right. To oh, this, okay. This I didn't of, know that. This type of food into the schools. We've applied for our vendor license mm-hmm. uh, for school food. Yep. We've just been accepted to take bids. Um, we're not big enough to take any of the bids yet, but we're right. getting our foot in the door and uh, learning the process. And um, probably going to work on a pilot program right. with a small school. Where Where's my salad, bruh? That, oh. so- that sounds like a giant billboard that should be like, you know, and Ru- and this, around this, the this, city. Like and Rudy's mayor, like 6'4". You know. Politicians, where's my salad, bruh? Yeah, seriously. Um, you know, they have salad bars in the schools, but it's it's not, it's not right. good. It's like the iceberg lettuce and shredded carrots and... Did you see Michael Moore's last doc? Where, Which uh, one? Where, where should we invade next? I mean, that's not the right title, but I feel like uh, I started, but I don't. I don't think I've seen the whole thing. He goes around to different countries, looking at different aspects of their culture and, and political and societal, you know, customs slash institutions. 
uh, and how they're different and better than ours. Um, and, and the one is like, uh, you know, school lunch in France. And you're just watching these kids eating these incredible meals when they're like seven or eight. And you're like, why, why can't we have something approximating that? However far, I, mean, I don't really like all the measuring we do of ourselves against other countries. Right. Um, but however far down the list we are on math, science, technology, all of those categories, I would guarantee we're almost, if not at the very bottom, for food. Right. Um, particularly our school food. Uh, I mean, the kids, it, my wrestlers now, um, just don't eat lunch. They right. just don't eat lunch. They're, they're always hungry at the beginning of the practice. I bring, you know, oranges, grapes, whatever, just to get them a little right. boost before we uh, practice. And then I'm still taking salads every day for uh, kids that want them after practice. Are you, um, you know, as someone who's now moving into the food industry, obviously at a small local scale, but someone who's learning about it and thinking about it a lot, um, you know, are you as a, as someone from a farming family, farming background, are you generally optimistic about where we're going as a as a nation? Because we have a lot of room to improve. I mean, or do you think? Because you know, my, when I look at the issue, my concern is always, oh yeah, you know, the bougie people watching Netflix docs and and who can spend eight dollars on a juice, they're going to start. They already have leaned into this heavily, and uh, but the folks who don't have access to that can't afford it aren't aware of it, you know, are falling behind. And like you said, we don't, our doctors don't learn about nutrition very much in medical school. You don't come in with high, early onset high blood pressure or other kind of problems and have a guy say, let's just change the way you eat for two months and come back and see me. We won't even treat people that way. So how are we going to, you know, how are these benefits going to, trickle down is the wrong word, but spread to more of the population? That's a great question. Um, if I had that answer, I, uh, I'd be doing it right now. So this podcast, um, <laughs> Just kidding. Um, you have permission to leave if you have. If I answer. have that answer, yeah. <laughs> that or if I can solve climate change real quick, I'll right? You know, I have to reschedule. On a person-to-person level, I'm very optimistic. Right. It seems like that's the way the tide is turning across yep. the board. Not just not just the rich, boozy people that you were talking about. Um, everyone's starting to take note. Right. Um, even the kids uh, in the schools, you know, they know. Particularly kids who are first-generation American or just immigrated here. Um, who've got that healthier uh, diet and sure. grandparents cooking good oh, stuff at sure. home and they know what, yeah, right. You know, a lot of my kids were from DR and right. uh, the fruit down there was, you know, it's hard for them to even eat the fruit up here because it was just so fresh. Right. Um, because they lived, you know, within walking distance of a mango tree or yep. a banana tree. Sure. Um, banana tree, sorry. But on a policy and corporate level, I think we're moving in the wrong direction. Right. Um, we're still centralizing everything um you know eventually it'll be amazon versus facebook for world title of owning everything right right um, or google or apple one of those companies yeah yeah and i think that what that does it narrows significantly the perspective that we bring to the table right um and we're doing all of this in the name of efficiency and i just don't think that is the way to do it but there's a there's a pretty solid pushback to industrial food Right. Um, more people are gardening, I feel like. More people are paying attention. Farmers markets are growing like crazy. Yeah. And so on that level, you know, I think I think that well, the system is going to collapse on itself if there's not a change. Right. Um, so to, to your point about prescribing foods, there are actually a couple of hospitals. This actually made me pretty optimistic. I talked to someone recently in uh, my growing soils class who works for, I think, Presbyterian Hospital. Mm-hmm. And they have a pilot program where they are prescribing vegetables. Prescribing food. I love it. With Grow NYC. And they get like a box uh, once a week or twice mm-hmm. a week. And it's, right. it's very, very affordable. And they take uh, 
uh, we'll take uh, food stamps. I'm right. Not yep. remember the name right now. Yeah. Um, that's cool. I guess I guess being in it, I'm more optimistic. Yeah. Because I, I see growth on our end. I think what we're doing, the timing is is right for what we're doing. Right. And just seeing like, and we're not talking about kids in the South Bronx. We're talking about Ivy League educated twenty something year olds working at one of the hot startups in New York, and they're they're amazed at fresh vegetables. Right. Uh, and I think what we have is pretty good. Yep. It's not as good as my grandmother's. You know, right. It's not. It's not the first time I've ever had good food. So right. I'm, I'm very excited that it's good. But right. I don't. I'm not amazed by it like some right. of our customers, which is uh, that makes us feel great. But it also lets us know like the bar is still pretty low. Yep. Um, I had this. I was reading this an article in the Times this past Sunday. I think it was an interview. And now I'm just going to. I'm going to speak in generics. I can't remember the, the name. It was one of the top executives at uh, at the big company that owns Heinz and Kraft and those things. And they right. were asking him about this issue of quality food and and he had kind of an interesting response that had to do with like innovation on sort of on the go type of foods and egg dishes that you could you know eat in the car and and he made the point which i thought was at least on some level inarguable which is that people don't have time and so we've got to find ways to get them you and i might still say better versions of crap food but you know if if, uh, if people can't find the time and make the time to prepare food then are we headed toward, you know, the solution being for those that can afford to go to the farmer's market, the farmer's market for people who can't, different versions of pills and, and liquids and, you know, that, that are going to be nutritionally, you know. It, it's almost like is, is quality food and time preparing food a luxury that people are not going to be able to afford? That was interesting that he had that perspective because I thought, I guess in some ways for the normal family, both people, both parents working, whatever, you know, Where's the time to prepare food? It's tough. Well, I think a lot of companies, um, us, Dig In, Sweet Green, uh, Oxford, are working on making it as convenient as possible for right. people to eat real food. So I think if whoever that gentleman was, uh, if they start investing in fast, casual, healthy restaurants, it'll right. change his tune a little bit. Yep. That sounds like something you might say if you're peddling processed shit. Exactly. Um, so I'd. I think that trying to fit food into our incredibly busy corporate fast-paced lifestyle will never work right. because food is tied to the land, it's tied to nature. There are certain limits on what you can do. There are no shortcuts ever. This is one this is one thing I learned in farming. There's absolutely no shortcuts. Anytime you try to increase yield somewhere, something else is going to suffer. That's interesting. Um, and if you're not putting back everything that you're taking from the earth, you're going to run out eventually. It's going right. to deplete itself. You're going to have to uh, supplement with fertilizers. And when you're growing plants in soil that's not fertile, they're more likely to uh, be attacked by pests. So that's why you have to spray even more pesticide, oh, which leads wow. to the algae booms in the ocean because of the runoff. Right. So now we have dead zones in the ocean and everything. All of that stuff is, is connected. Right. And I think we have become so disconnected from our food and where it comes from. From nature in general, I suppose. From nature in general, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, it would be great if every building or every other building in New York had a rooftop garden right. or some indoor farm. You asked earlier about where I thought vertical farming could fit into all this. I think vertical farming could be the link for folks who live in the city to their food source. Right. I don't think it will ever be the primary source of food unless right. we all go, you know, to a rabbit diet and we're just eating right. grains and herbs and edible flowers and mushrooms and rooftop right. honey. Right. But if we're going to have, 
more diverse diets, I think that it has sort of a wow factor, a cool factor, like, oh, they're bringing the farm into the city. Um, right. You know, we've taken Metro shelves and set them up with lights just in the in a bar when we're doing like a little event just to show people, hey, this is kind of farming we're doing. Right. Don't be too impressed. Most right. Of the, most of the food comes from the type of farms that you're imagining in your head that are wide open spaces and have a pond or some sort of water management system. Right. Um, but uh, I think if, if it can just catch people's attention, mm-hmm. if that can be the first step and a right. series of steps to get back in touch with your food, where it comes from. Right. Because the, the calories that we're eating now are sold with uh, incredible marketing, incredible branding, but there's not a real connection. And right. there will never, ever beat a real connection. I, I can't imagine anyone ever wanting the fanciest thing that Heinz makes over their great-grandmother's you know, secret recipe, <laughs> right. apple pie or right. potato Bowling salad. Or, or, yeah. yeah, whatever it is, you know, right. whatever it is. Because I heard a great phrase recently, I cannot take credit for this, but you cannot have agriculture without culture. And we sort of have, like, American food is almost cultureless. Right. It's, it's McDonald's, just in different ways, you know, right. as fast as possible, as efficient as possible. Right. It comes with a toy, you know, you get right. points for this. This is part of a, a diet. Right. Um, Buy 10, get one free. All yeah. you can eat, get massive your, yeah, sizes. Yeah, get your stamps. Yeah. Um, and as we're cramming ourselves full of these calories, we're just we're missing out on one of the true joys of life, which is something that is just so delicious, you just have to pause and stop and just appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And I just feel, I genuinely feel bad for people who don't have that experience ever or right. on a regular basis. Right. And I feel incredibly fortunate um, to have that experience on a pretty regular basis. Especially given that I'm not in one of the top tax brackets, right? I think, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, based, based on my tax bracket, I'm eating better than most. <laughs> yeah, you're over-indexing on your for sure. Eating, I'm, 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 eat, I'm eating like the one percent. I'm just that's good. Little, little, little ways away. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I was, I was thinking about uh, this whole issue of uh, the hyper efficiency and all this exponential technological growth. Everything's moving faster, and. I was I was asking people this question, the following, which was, can you name me an industry or an area of life, something like, you know, travel, uh, you know, handling information, um, financial dealings where, you know, slower is better or there is there's a there's a going to be a quality that would go with doing something slowly versus doing it faster, because essentially everything we're doing for the most part feels like it's moving toward faster, more efficient, faster, more efficient. And, you know. No one's going to go back to wanting to like bank through the mail, you know, when sure. they can do it on their phone or online. And, you know, I owe you ten bucks, boom, I Venmo it to you. It's, you know, I'm not going to go back to, and that's that's obviously positive. But you know, most people I talk to, they cannot come up with an answer. If we if they pick an industry, we say, yeah, nope, slower, no. Nope. And so it's interesting about food, and you saying there are no shortcuts to a, to a great strawberry. You know, it's almost like food has in it essentially kind of a hold the line position where if you really want to have the quality you just can't you just can't machine slash engineer your way to some shortcut uh we we certainly haven't been able to yet we've tried to we've tried our damnedest and we're still trying very hard um i don't think we ever will i don't really want to right you know i think there's something if you taste a a strawberry in season i mean have one in the middle of winter that came on a truck or wherever from you know mexico at least it's still red but it doesn't compare you, you know those uh, pick your own strawberry places 
the best strawberries are the ones that you kind of steal because you're eating them when you're out there, you know, and then they don't get weighed. <laughs> like little style with you the blueberries. Li- yeah, you li- you pick them right there, kind of wipe the dirt off, maybe there's a little left on it, who cares. Right, right. And that strawberry right then is at its freshest, most delicious state. Yep. Um, not every vegetable or fruit is like that. Some actually, um, sweet potatoes, butternut squash will get more nutritious and a little more tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, after they're harvested, if they're right. stored properly for a little while. Right. But for the most part, um, food is, is most delicious and most nutritious directly after harvest, particularly greens. Got it. Um, I could see vertical farming if we get the nutrient formula right and solar energy comes way down in cost and LEDs get which way more efficient. I, yeah. I, I definitely think there's a point at which it will right. be um, economically viable. Greens, herbs, edible flowers, that kind of thing, we might be able to get close to um, what it would be growing in in fertile soil. Right. But every time I read an article about vertical farming, it is painting it as this, like, silver bullet that's going to save the world and fix all the impending water crisis. We'll turn the parking decks into vertical farms. We don't drive anymore. The unused subway systems, everything. It's going to be a green wonderland uh, based on these – Articles, of course, no one's going to have jobs because everything's automated, and right. robots are going to be doing all the farming. That that worries me a little bit too. With AI and automation, um, if let's say twenty years from now, half the workforce is out of work, right? Uh, we'll need some sort of, I don't know if it's guaranteed minimum income or something for right. people to do. UBI so it comes up on every one of these podcasts. Sure. Well, you know, um, it, you can't starve out everyone, right? Um, right, and you, you know, if people aren't there, there's no economy to. No, for sure. Lowered over. That's um, right. But maybe we could all go back to gardening, right? You know, if I if I didn't have to, if I didn't have to worry about making money or paying rent or any of that stuff, and I could just live off the land, and I, I think I could probably do that. Yeah, I hear you. Um, let's let's do a little pivot back, sort of backwards and sideways, because obviously you talk about noticing the nutritional uh, deficiencies in your wrestlers, and you know your your uh, teaching. You know, we're going back now and, t- and coaching. In uh, in the Bronx at a, at a school in a very very you know economically disadvantaged zip code, you know, uh, all, you know your students are all mostly you know children of color, and you're the you're the white Southern farmer from North Carolina, and you know things about think, think about food deserts as you said and food scarcity and all these issues where they seem to be more acute you know at lower economic levels and mixed in with cross matrix with our sort of institutional racial oppressive society and the historical legacies of all of that. Can you just talk a little bit about your experiences, you know, being at that school and working up there and kind of looking at these issues more broadly? Because I know you got to know a lot about your students' lives outside of school and outside of wrestling and how it's affected you as a person. Well, I'm very grateful to have sort of been thrown into this experience. Coaching a wrestling team or being a special ed teacher in the South Bronx is not something I would have thought that I'd be doing, even if you had told me I'd be doing it two years before I moved to New York. Right. Certainly not growing up in, in Johnson County, North Carolina. It opened my eyes to a world or part of America I simply didn't know existed. You know, I grew up very much believing anybody in America could make it. We all had bootstraps we could pull ourselves up by. Right. Equal opportunities. Some have a little better than others, sure. But uh, for the most part, level playing field. That myth has certainly been busted in my head. Right. Um, I saw a map not too long ago that uh, was a map of food deserts. I believe it was in Baltimore. And then they laid over this a map of the redlining districts from decades ago, and they fit almost perfectly. Mm. So I don't think that food deserts um, are accidental 
It's not something that just happened. Right. Um, it's a result of systematic oppression for hundreds of years. Right. And that's uh, something that we have sort of run from as a country. You know, right. The shame we probably ought to feel. Right. For how we uh, treat certain groups of people. Yep. As, as a society. And that just seems to be an emotion we don't want to deal with, so we just run away from it and it's find true. every possible reason that people could be disadvantaged other than... Right. You know, Our own history. It, it, it's, it's history. Yeah. Right. It, it definitely... I mean, the, the food thing was just baffling, um, just, just with the kids and what they didn't know. It doesn't seem as baffling now that there are Ivy League-educated millennials who also don't know. Right. <laughs> um, the kids aren't that far behind from everyone else. Right. They just don't have access or money right. uh, for the good stuff. And even working there, my diet suffered tremendously because I was working a lot. Every teacher, shout out to any teacher out there, um, hats off. I think you have the hardest, most underappreciated job in the world. Every teacher is working extra hours, right. stressed. Only the really responsible ones bring their lunch. I mean, a lot of them do, but yeah, I, was not, I was not in that group. Right. I would be now, but I wasn't then. And so I was eating at the Chinese spot or uh, just the bodega. Right. And... You know, it affects the way you feel, your energy levels, and your ability to think clearly. Mm-hmm. I think I was just kind of fuzzy there for a while because I was just eating such crap. Um, I certainly feel better now that I'm in the food industry and have access to right. fresh, healthy, farm-to-table food every single day. Yep. Um, it is just night and day difference. I, we have I, I, to eliminate food deserts. Well, actually, we're calling them – we. Folks are calling them food swamps now right? because they are loaded with calories. It's just not real food. Ah, it's just fake food. Got um, it. Which, you know, this whole fake news thing never – it hasn't surprised me. Yeah. It's, it's been, uh, we haven't been able to tell real food from fake food for a while. <laughs> so it's only so a matter food, of time. So food was ahead of the curve I, on the fake thing. Absolutely. Way ahead. Absolutely. I mean, when I was a teenager, I had a summer where I drank two to three Mountain Dews a day. Oh, yeah. Because I was trying to win a million dollars for the uh, this NASCAR race. And if you collect the bottle caps and have the top three finishers – you could win a million dollars. And, of course, that's what I wanted to do. So I was just pounding Mountain Dews. Thank goodness that didn't continue. Um, but that was directly marketed towards children, just sure. like a lot of the sugary cereals, uh, which are basically dessert for breakfast. Right. But if you live in a food desert or a food swamp, that is food to you. That's right. it. That's all you know. You don't have, you know, unless you take a field trip to a farm. Right. Your food comes from the bodega. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, all they have. Yeah. So I think uh, the the thing I'm most hopeful for is is, is uh, pulling the lever with or, or moving the needle with the schools. Right. And if we can shift how New York City public school kids eat, we can shift how the rest of the country eats because New York City public schools um, buy more food than any other organization in the country except for the military. Get out. So if you can move that needle – um, wow. And show it works in a school district as large as New York. Yeah. Other cities will absolutely follow. Right. And it could be a boon to local food economies. I think we would need to increase what we're spending per kid on food every day. For sure. But I think it would absolutely pay for itself in right. health benefits down the line, improved attendance, uh, test scores uh, across the board. I mean, it's kind of it's ironic because uh, that all sounds great and would it, if you could pull that off, that'd be fantastic. And then my brain clicks to the next thing of like, ah, oh, yet again, we want the schools to solve our problems, right? Like, 100%. Right. For sure. Like, why, why don't these kids have good food? Well, that's about their parents 
and uh, their neighborhoods and the lack of jobs and all the other issues with the, the broader community they live in that ought to be able to, in an ideal world, supply them with nutritional diet. And so the schools, you know, I mean, but then again, they're there and they're there tons of hours, tons of days. So it's, a, it's an access point to their lives. But it is interesting how much we often look to the schools to come in and, and uh in potentially, you know, solve some of these issues that really, in a way, have, shouldn't have anything to do with the schools. I agree. Um, I wish schools were more community center right. than just places for kids to go. Right. Uh, during the day, I wish they, um, I mean, a lot of schools do do this. They incorporate a lot of parent events, parent outreach, but <clears throat> if the school was a place where you could get your groceries or your farmer's market box or whatever, right. I think more parents would uh, be involved. They'd be able to save the time they were going to a grocery store far away, go to the school. Um, right. And regardless of how we feel about it, schools are where a lot of kids get their only one or two meals a day, right. um, particularly in New York City. Um, I just I find it shameful and disgusting that one in six kids in America is food insecure, which means they don't know if they're going to have food when they go home. And if you miss a meal a couple of times a year because you don't have food in your house, you can best believe you're worrying about it 365 days a year. Right. If you're going hungry periodically because there's not food in the house, that is a constant stressor on your mind, on your body. Your cortisol levels are going up. You know, it affects everything. Right. So just basic, you know, there's like the ideal world where everyone's growing their own food and there's a garden and there's no need for Green Top. Right. Or any other company that's making real food because everyone's making their own food. And then there's the reality of where we are now. Right. And any steps we can take in that direction I think are good, but... It can't just be baby steps because there's uh, too much at stake with, right. with the planet crumbling and climate change. and Yeah. First generation of Americans not going to outlive their parents. Um, Is that where we're headed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The kids now are predicted not to outlive their parents. Wow. I think 15 and under or something. That's harsh. Childhood diabetes is all-time high. Um, yeah, you wonder, like, if, if, I think if someone took the stats on the deaths uh, that are occurring – just from the, the top couple of ones, from the diabetes, from heart disease and things like that, and, and uh, reframed it as the act of a foreign power, right? Oh, we'd we, be at war. we would be at war. Immediately. We'd, we'd, we'd be selling war bonds. We'd be mobilizing. We'd have the government saying, you know, not that I'm for a centralized economy, but we'd have the government slash the, the leadership of the country saying, okay, well, no more of that. Can't do that. Scrap, forget that. We're going to start doing this uh, if we were, quote, unquote, being invaded. Uh, and, but we I, are. I don't know if we would be at this point. Yeah. Because we sort of are being invaded uh, no, through it's our true. voting system. But I mean, it's true. But I mean, if tomorrow it was revealed, I'm just making it up, that a foreign power, you know, had somehow infiltrated, you know, the, infiltrated the food system and gotten us to this stage. I mean, it, the metaphor breaks down. Doesn't really, it doesn't really make any sense. The point is that that we, you know, we can have these fatalities, quote unquote. We can have this, you know, where we're committing suicide in a certain way. And, For sure. Uh, um, you know, but, but we don't we don't look at it in the same we don't think about it like why don't we quote unquote take action as a nation? It you know, it's one of those it's one of those intractable issues because it involves thousands and thousands of individual actors all exercising their own agency to be profitable or to sell something and or to sell this and so it's hard to without being dictatorial, uh to just kind of dictate, hey, you know, Heinz, stop selling this. General Mills, stop selling that. That's not gonna happen in America, but you know, you do feel like uh, there could be some rather draconian measures if if it was reframed as a, you know, as a literal warlike issue. 
And but on the statistical level, I guess is my point, vis-a-vis actual conflicts, we are just we're getting pummeled, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think um, if a foreign power wants us to be debilitated and weakened, patience is their number one uh, <laughs> yeah, weapon right. because we're doing it to ourselves. Right? It's uh, it's terrible. We're. Um, have you read the third plate? No, I have Dan not. Barber. There's an entire chapter on soil there, and I'm probably misquoting this, but the gist was it was a soil expert who made a prediction that better soil would produce better soldiers. And when they looked at the acceptance rates into the Army, I think it was in Oklahoma, and compared it with soil fertility rates around the state, um, areas that had higher soil fertility had higher acceptance rates, lower soil fertility had lower acceptance rates, and lower health outcomes, lower economic um, conditions. There's some argument that uh, uh, depleted people make depleted soil, but it's certainly, it's it's at least a two-way street, if not just the soil is making us less intelligent, less healthy, less physically fit. Right. Um, And... We're having we we've never drawn that connection as a society. It's cer- right. We certainly need. I, I like what you just said about how it's framed. We certainly need some reframing of the yeah. food. That's very difficult uh, when policies are essentially for sale and the government can be bought and paid for. Right. So on an individual level and on a local level, right. Um, I think that's that's the, what most people should focus on. Right. Um, and then of course getting involved in your local politics to know who's who's making decisions for you right so you came up wrestling all the way through college uh i imagine there was not a girls wrestling team at chapel hill or in your high school still still isn't still isn't and you, you so just i mean not that it's connected to the me too moment but in general you know like girls wrestling and i've seen some of the videos and and you guys have the doc you're working on you just talk a little bit about that whole that sport and uh and also just how how you see it impact the girls that you're working with and uh the sort of you know it's just not, it's not a natural thing we think of with with young women for sure um well wrestling was huge for me i think it kept me from getting into a lot of trouble and if it weren't for wrestling i probably would not be uh so conscious of what i eat mm-hmm. I, i'm almost guaranteed i wouldn't be i'd be much i'd be overweight i'd, I'd guess um so it was uh, very instrumental to me. And then when I moved to New York and I started teaching, there were a couple of kids in my classes who found out that I used to wrestle and they kept bugging me about starting a wrestling team because some of them had wrestled in middle school um, through Beat the Streets, which is a nonprofit that funds wrestling in New York. Right. And when we started the team, when I first tried to start it, they were not, they were not adding any new teams. Uh, I thought it was budget, budget cuts, but it actually was a Title IX lawsuit. Okay. Because uh, there were... There, were, uh, there was a suit about there not being enough female participation in sports across the board. And since re- wrestling is a primarily male sport, there were girls wrestling before. There have always been women wrestling. Right. Um, but not in, not in large numbers. It's never been really promoted. So New York City responded by starting an all-girls league, which was the same year that we got our team in general. So the first year we got a boys team, and then we got a girls team in the spring. And then the next year we had a middle school program added. But uh, I certainly would not have guessed I'd ever be coaching an all-girls wrestling team. Right. Um, it was uh, it was a little awkward in the beginning. Um, you know, how do you coach wrestling when you're coaching girls? Right. And we had a meeting with the Team USA coach Terry Steiner, and he broke it down uh, pretty simply. You know, you just you coach wrestling just like anyone else. He talked about the differences between coaching boys and coaching girls. The most notable being uh, how they receive feedback. Mm-hmm. If you give a general 
uh, criticism or just general feedback to a, a team of girls. Almost all of them are thinking that you're talking directly to them, and they really take it personally. So you have to uh, be very careful with what you're saying. You have to make sure that if every single person is taking this personally, that it's going to sit well and it's going to be received in the way you want it to. Does that mean the boys think, oh, coach is talking to somebody else? Not me. Yeah, definitely this guy over here. It's not me for sure. (laughs) I'm the best. You know, I already got my my finishing move, you know, some kid told me recently. You know, they they kind of blur the WWE in wrestling if they've ever done it. but uh, when you coach teenagers, boys or girls, um, they share a lot. You learn a lot about their lives and uh, particularly learning about the girls' lives and some of the things they've had to go through, which I'm not going to get into details. Um, that was another thing I just was completely unaware of. Right. Um, I'm ashamed to say it has uh, turned me into a proud feminist. Right. Um, I think the world would be much, much better off if um, women were in charge of most things. Yeah, absolutely. Or a hell of a lot you know, more than they are right if now. If there were two ladies doing this podcast and we were out in the fields working, we'd probably be better <laughs> off as a society. Yeah. Um, I think we definitely need more women in leadership roles across the board. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's tons of studies that show groups make better decisions when there's men and women. Yeah. Um, I think uh, we can just see that on the world stage. And I think women think more long term right. about, about problems and solutions. You know, men are what's the fastest we can get this done? What's the biggest and best and right. you know, coolest thing we can do with this? And women yep. are like, What's you know right. let's think about this from a holistic way. You know, exactly. what's what's not gonna hurt the kids right. when it runs off into the ocean, you know. Right. I think if, if more women were making those decisions, we would not be spraying cancer causing roundup on a lot of our food. Right. Um and this is yeah. I shouldn't even say this, but it also, coaching a girls' wrestling team, showed me how, certainly in the teenage years, how much tougher the girls are than the boys. Tougher. Um, much yeah. tougher. Just like uh, mental resilience, I mean. For sure. Yeah. If, the, if there's a girl crying, then she probably lost a tough match or she's injured and actually hurt. Mm-hmm. If the boy's crying, probably just raised your voice and told him to sprint faster or something. You know? Really? So, yeah, it's... Uh, they they deal better with the pressure, uh, the girls do, than, right. than the boys. It's certainly that age. I mean, they're definitely more mature. I mean, everyone knows right. that, but I didn't realize the gap was so big. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes me want to go back and apologize to all my right. high school teachers, certainly my mother. I've already apologized to my mother. Um, Mom, I'm coaching girls wrestling, and I realize I need to apologize to you. No, 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 just from, from being a teacher. Yeah, I told right. her that if I had known how hard her days were before she got home to us, I never would have misbehaved ever. Right. Um, it's probably not true, but... She appreciated the thought behind it. Um, Got it. Yeah, it's uh, it's one coaching coaching wrestling in the Bronx, um, coaching a girls team in the Bronx, but just coaching in general has been uh, probably the coolest thing I've ever done. With Green Top, I feel like we could make a difference. Right. When I'm coaching wrestling, I see kids losing weight. I see the grades going up. I see their focus increasing. Um, I see them go from losing matches to winning matches. Right. I feel like I know this is a good thing to be doing. Yep. Um, I feel really good about the time I'm there. And uh, hopefully we'll have a, a center, like a training center up there for all the kids to go, um, with a little green top pop-up stand. So That would be awesome. We can make sure that they're getting uh, real food. And, of course, we won't be allowing any uh, Takis or uh, Sour Patch Kids. Or any Rice Krispie Treats. Nah, no Rice Krispie Treats. Unless they want to make them themselves and do a little project. Right. You know, if you're making junk food yourself, it takes longer. You're going to eat less of it. Yeah, That's I forget. Okay. One of those guys, Michael Pollan, one of those people said something like, you know, you can eat whatever, 
but if it's sort of on the junkier, sweetier side, make it. Make it, yeah. Make yeah. it yourself, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you won't do as much, and it'll probably be better, and, you know, so. You ever, you ever made homemade ice cream? I have. I have. Hand-cranked it in a wooden, you know, thingamabob. How, how was it? It was amazing. Yeah. Like, mind-blowing. I guarantee if you had the same ice cream, you didn't know it was homemade, you didn't spend the time on it, it'd probably be good. Probably not as good right. as, as it was having made it. Also, a shit, lot of, a shit ton of work. Oh, yeah, say. yeah, well, for sure, for so sure. I'm not going to do that on a Tuesday night. You no, know? no, no, no. Uh, Instead, the kids go, Dad, we'll go down to the, to the corner store and get some ice cream. And you do it, yeah. you know? So, well, Josh, look, man, uh, thanks for uh, rapping about food, green top, wrestling, and uh, best of luck with uh, coaching and the Dream Center. I know you're going you're gonna to build in the future Green Top Farms. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciate it, and this has been fun. Okay. All right. Bye. My thanks again to Josh Lee. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.